0: Hey friends, it's me, Katie Ann, and your host of the Full Confidence Ahead podcast, where we go on a journey together tackling the fears of life from family relationships to finance, from careers to community. Last week, we heard the beautiful story of Wendy and her cocoon to butterfly moment. And I have to say, I am consistently in awe of her and her life and how she used her struggles to push her forward. And if you haven't listened to the episode, make sure to go back and download it so you can listen to it anytime, anywhere. I also wanted to give a shout out to our new friend in Washington. Hello! (laughs) I hope you're having a wonderful day. Thanks for listening to the show. This week, I get to introduce to you Major Joshua Dawson. Major Dawson joined the U.S. Army in 2002, initially enlisted as a field artillery cannon crew member. However, in 2006, he was commissioned as an Army aviation officer. And today, he's sharing with us his experience flying military helicopters. And now, I've never flown in a helicopter but when Major Dawson talked me through his experience, it was in such detail, I honestly almost felt like I was in the aircraft right alongside him. So, buckle up, embrace yourself, because we are going on a wild ride through the air. Now, if you found this conversation spoke right to you, make sure to leave a comment. Major Dawson would love to hear what you thought about his helicopter experience. Also, make sure to hit the follow button and download the episode so you can stay up to date on our show. Josh, we are so excited to have you here with us. You just have a really unique experience with the military, flying helicopters, and this one that is really personal to me, this interview, because I, I was born on an Air Force base, and so having been born into this beautiful military service, I am so grateful for, uh, it's just a different perspective when it's in your family, where it's my dad was away. my dad was there, we lived on base. And even though I was young, very influential. So I'm really, first, just thank you for your service. Really thank you. And so excited to hear about your experiences. But we have to know, to start off, what is your guilty pleasure food?
1: Yeah, Katie, first foremost, uh, thanks for having me on. You know, uh, I've listened to a few of your podcasts. They're very good. Thank you. Um, you know, it, Dr. Uh, Richards is going to be a tough one to follow. So <laughs> <laughs> just because you both have that, that passion of flying. Of oh, yeah. Them, from my perspective on it. <laughs> okay. But, uh, guilty pleasure. Let's see here. Food. Um, I definitely have to say uh, my go-to guilty pleasure is definitely ice cream. Oh, okay. So,
0: Do you have like a certain type of ice cream?
1: Uh, I really like uh, any kind of shake, you know. Uh, a good oreo peanut butter shake sounds good but i'll mix up the flavors just to keep it interesting but it's definitely one of those things we can't have any ice cream in the house because i'll just eat it so <laughs> i get that <laughs> so, yeah, have to any, know. any sweets i uh, have to stay outside the house or else they just get devoured but especially ice cream
0: yeah that's definitely me too but i have to know this is always the debate with shakes are you a shake person are do you like it the consistency where you can use a straw or do you like it thicker and you're a spoon
1: well, since I like the uh, the Oreo peanut butter one the best, the uh-huh. Oreos get really hard when you're sucking it yeah. up through a straw and like get clogged. So, uh, I usually like to eat mine with spoon.
0: <laughs> a spoon. I'm definitely a spoon. If it's a, if you're like sipping it through a saw, I'm like this is just milk. I'm like sugary milk. I want I want the shake. I like a little bit more <laughs> just that consistency right in between full ice cream. And milk, like that solid middle ground That's hilarious. This is my guilty food. It's uh fruit snacks. Oh yeah. Oh, <laughs> I'm, yeah. The, I'm like I'm that adult who's still buying the kids snacks all the time, <laughs> <but> it's okay. <laughs> but we are so excited to have you on. Can you just tell us a little bit about how you got into the military um and kind of what you did through the military?
1: Uh yeah. So I mean this this kind of goes all the way back to, to high school for me. Great. Um So when I was in high school, you know, the uh, war in Iraq kicked off uh, when I was a senior. Uh, And so I I was kind of, you know, upset about September 11th and things like that anyway. But um, at the same time, you know, that's the period where you're trying to find how am I going to go to college because I want to go to college. And, uh, you know, my dad uh, was definitely the type. He's like, hey, I'll pay for any application, but uh, I'm not going to pay for your school. (laughs) So, for me, it was kind of a combination of things. Uh, you know, he's the one that kind of recommended to me. Uh, he did the uh, University of Utah Army ROTC program. Awesome. Uh, didn't actually join the Army because he was trying to convince me like, hey, it's one year, no obligation. Just go take the Army's money for one year and then use other scholarships to pay for the other three. You'll be fine, you know. and. Uh, so that's one of the uh, scholarships I applied for was the uh, Army RTC scholarship, and I managed to get, to get a four-year scholarship to the Utah State University for the Army RTC. So that's wow. kind of when it all happened, but I like, said, a lot of it had to do with that I was even interested in the Army, and uh, the reason why I stuck with it was mainly because, you know, we were a nation of war, and, and I felt like I could do my part.
0: Right, um, that's so that's kind of how my dad got involved too. It it paid for school, and then when you're put in that situation, you also realize how how beautiful the environment is, and it's sometimes you hear in the news about all these wars and whatnot, but then you realize, hey, I'm I'm making a difference, and there's of course mm-hmm. there's other ways to make a difference, but you're directly impacting that. Um, so tell us your progression through the military. So you started with ROTC, then kind of what happened.
1: Yeah, so uh, <laughs> the whole one year no obligation uh, kind of went out the, the window quickly. <laughs> yeah, I'm so, like, uh,
0: I, that didn't work.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, I started school in August and by November I had actually uh, enlisted in the Utah National Guard. So Oh, wow, uh, okay. As a field artillery uh, cannon crew member. and So uh-huh. I actually enlisted in the Guard, which the Guard still pays for school. So either way I was getting my school paid for, but mm-hmm. I was looking to commit uh, sooner than later. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, while I was, you know, doing my one-week, end a month, two weeks, uh, a year drills uh, with the, the National Guard. Uh, I still went to school. And then when I graduated, uh, after four years, uh, had a bachelor's in computer science, but at the same time, commissioned as an officer uh, into active duty. And I uh, was lucky enough, as you know, to, to get aviation as my branch. So that's kind of where it all started. Great. Right. Uh, flight school is, uh, is not quick. You know, It took two years, so 2007 to 2009, I was at flight school at Fort Rucker, Alabama. Uh, and you know, depending on which airframe you fly, some take longer than others, but uh, you know, it was always my dream to fly the Apache specifically, and that also happens to be the longest because, uh, as as you may know, the Apache is the attack helicopter, so there's a bunch of uh, not only do you have to learn to fly, but you have to learn how to, you know, uh, basically fight wars in it, and also uh, how to control the weapon systems and things like that, so it, it just takes a long time, but uh, that's. Got me through flight school, and then from there, my first duty station was uh, Germany. So I stationed in Germany for three years, uh, deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan and uh, Germany, and then from there, went back to Fort Rucker, because you'll, you know, we call it the, the motherland for aviation, because you'll always go there two, three times throughout your career. Uh, and that was just for a course, for for career course lasted six months, and then from there, went out to Bakersfield, California, did a recruiting company camp for two years, and then went to uh, University of Utah after that for a two-year master's. And then back to Fort Rucker, Alabama where I commanded the United States Army, played school for two years. And then from there to Fort Riley, <laughs> Kansas. Uh, from Fort Riley, Kansas, I deployed to uh, Poland and South Korea. And then after that, we ended up here. So back in uh, Salt Lake City, Utah for uh, my PhD in uh, computer Science from uh, University of Utah.
0: That's amazing. Um, I think that's one of the part of the military that a lot of people maybe don't know is how frequently you're kind of moved around. Um, and, and you kind of accumulate these incredible experiences around the world that are incredible. So that, that's a lot of switching. And that's, that's amazing. I really want to talk. I'm just so curious about your helicopter experience. Because I, I've never fl- flown in a helicopter it's kind of a dream but I a helicopter is hard but attack helicopter is a whole different thing like okay so helicopters how was that learning to fly
1: yeah I mean it's uh it was really hard at first you know so <laughs> yeah uh it, you know, the fact that I made it into RV, Army Aviation was uh, is extremely rare, you know.
0: Right. Uh, right. Out of
1: everyone, you know, there's almost a million people in the United States Army between the National Guard, Reserves, and, and active right. duty. And, you know, very, very few are pilots, you know. <laughs> there's not a lot of pilots. Oh, on. yeah. So, you know, it started with uh, coming out of, uh, you know, my undergrad degree. I had to be in the top 10% of my class to guarantee my brand. You kind of had to excel there, and then you show up to flight school, and you're there with a bunch of people that were in the top 10% of their class, so you're, you're, used, you're around people that that uh, aren't used to failing, you know, and so yeah. then, but I mean, you're learning a skill that no one's ever, you know, most people that go to flight school have never flown before, so this is a new skill. Right. It's nothing like school. It's nothing like anything else you've done. It's not like high school sports or anything like that. And and uh, the hardest part was just uh, accepting uh, that you're gonna fail initially. You know, <laughs> the hardest thing no. to learn to do in a helicopter is is learn to hover. Um, you know, and that's what sets us apart from airplanes is that that's, you know we have to work in three dimensional space where they still kind of work in two dimensional space. Yeah. Uh, and I just remember that you know we call it finding your hover button. It takes 14 to 16 hours of flying usually to, yeah. to learn to hover. The hardest part. And like I said, there's a lot of failure in there uh, where you just don't get it because you you just don't have that muscle memory built on how to use the controls to fly the helicopter. So, so yeah, that was definitely the hardest part initially.
0: Wow, that's so interesting because uh, you're right. You're pulling in you're pulling in the cream of the crop. Like this is the top of the top. Not necessarily used to failing because these are the people who have succeeded, and then you're all put in something new. And that's, mm. that's really challenging. And yet I, I, how were those initial failures for you? How did you kind of push past that? Cause you obviously excelled and then suddenly you're like, that's, that's a huge switch to be so new at this.
1: Yeah. I mean, for me, it had a lot to do with my instructor pilot, you know, kind of their attitude really drives it. And mm. for him, he would, he would not let me get frustrated, which was good. Mm. Cause uh, you know, I would try to hover. first thing we do is always hover work. So we'd hop in the helicopter uh, for the for an hour and a half training flight, and we'd spend probably 10, 15 minutes just working on doing hover work. Uh, you know, and it, it's really funny because once you find this hover button, <laughs> it feels so ridiculously easy. It's like, how is that ever so hard? You know, it's kind is it of like, like learning one button? Is it <laughs> no, like I mean, just
0: one? <laughs> yeah. We just call it
1: that just because <laughs> the intuition like... kicks in, you know?
0: Um, I we get helicopters, like, riding a bike. I'm like, that's way harder. <laughs> so but, said, I mean, literally... no one
1: can explain, like, exactly right. how you learn to ride a bike, right? But right. once you figure right. it out, it's like, this is so easy. You just hop on and drive it, right? Oh, my goodness. And so uh flying <laughs> is the same way. And, you know, so my instructor pilot, you know, he would let me get pretty flounder around. And, I mean, it's funny to watch the videos if you hop on YouTube and just type in, like, learning to hover. Because you get the helicopter in some crazy, like, Sideways, backwards, you know, to yeah. the limits of your instructor pilot when finally he takes the control to say, and funny, because as soon as he takes control, it's like rock solid, perfect cover again, you know? And so you just feel so ridiculous because you cannot control it. But uh, he'd only let me do that for 10, 15 minutes, and then we'd go take off and we'd do some traffic uh, pattern work and just go fly around, which that part's the easy part, you know, that anyone can pick up. Um, yeah. And so we'd only do it in small, small spurts. You know, other instructor pilots were like, "No, we're going to work on how work work so until you get it." You know, and that, and I think for me, he knew that that would not be the best course. I can be better to uh, you know, just give me a little bit of failure in doses versus all at once and trying to figure it
0: out. So. My favorite thing each week is just to listen to the stories of these incredible people on the podcast. They give me confidence in all areas of my life. The Full Confidence Ahead sponsor, Utah Money Moms, has boosted my financial confidence. I remember the first time I heard about them on YouTube. I just found this video about tracking your expenses they had done. And it was so simple and confidence building that I went to their website and started downloading as much material as I could. Make sure you head over to utahmoneymoms.com after this episode to sign up for their free webinars on all financial topics from the basics of budgeting to estate planning. That is just crazy. Okay, so is it like one button to hover? How do you hover?
1: Yeah, so I mean, the problem is you're you're having to balance three different controls. You know, you got a cyclic in your right hand, a collective in your left hand, and then you got pedals for your feet. So we always uh, liken it to uh, trying to <laughs> trying to ride a unicycle on, on a beach ball. You know, <laughs> oh. imagine that you're oh. trying to balance uh, in a single point. You know, while moving your feet and hands at the same time, uh, it's just difficult. But like I said, once once you build that muscle memory of just small control touches on the controls, uh, you know, little movements are better than big movements. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you just find that that equilibrium, and everything just kind of clicks, and all of a sudden you're just doing it. Like I said, after that, you know, after the 14, 16 hour mark, uh, you know, hovering is just really easy. You pick it right up to a hover, you go taxi out and go fly.
0: That's crazy. I'm kind of imagining hovering or just flying a helicopter, kind of like Oregon, where you got your feet moving, you got your <laughs> hands, or I have a harpist too. And a lot of people yeah. don't know that we use our feet. So feet and hands. I I don't think I realized that they had pedals, that you have pedals on your feet. That's so complicated. And and hovering, I didn't know hovering was the hardest part. I, I would have never guessed. Um, I, I kind of want to go back into this experience of how your instructor helped you learn this hovering. So you said that, it was, he didn't let you get frustrated. And it was like these small increments of failure. And I actually really like how you said that. Um, these small increments of failure. I think sometimes tackling big tasks in life, I'm going to just apply this to big tasks in general, but I know I definitely get overwhelmed and flustered if I'm all in one sitting. But that's a really interesting tactic to push yourself literally to your limits. You mm-hmm. just do it at small increments. Have you applied that in other areas of your life, too?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it applies everywhere, you know. It, yeah. If you ever try to take, uh, you know, I mean, most, most self-help programs and things out there says, you know, you're supposed to set an in-state goal, you know. But if you set an in-state goal, it's good to have, like, intermediate goals because it's yeah. good to check things off as you go along, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't look at, like, hey, I want to graduate from college, you know, or, as, as the end step, and just focus on that. and then it you know, you fail your first test or you have your first bad assignment and you just quit, you know, uh, you have to like pick yourself back up and rebound and and, and get back after it. But uh, focusing on the smaller wins, you know, incrementally is way better than than just focusing on the one failure and quitting.
0: That is just huge. And I think that's probably helps us get into um a successful mindset is celebrating those little wins. Did you notice yourself when you were trying to hover that it incrementally got better? or was yeah, it wasn't like Yeah, yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. Like I said, you, you physically become fatigued too, you know, that's part yeah. of it. So, uh, you know, it's kind of a curve where, you know, you first hop in the helicopter and you aren't doing very well at first. And then after about five minutes, you start to do better and better and better. And you're almost there. But then you just become physically fatigued because, you know, these are muscles you haven't used. Uh, yeah. you're just tense in general on the controls. you can't relax uh yeah. so, you know you're like trying to fly with just all your muscles engaged at the uh, same time and, <laughs> and so you just get tired and then like that right. you, you start to come down on your performance again and like that usually that's when my sorry is like okay you know i think we're, we're good for now we'll go fly around for a little bit let you relax I'll take the controls, you know yeah <laughs> uh, and just try to let you like shake it out you know and just kind of yeah. reset and uh but yeah that that's Technique worked very
0: well for me. So That's just crazy. I I would probably be, if I was in a helicopter, I probably will never learn to fly a helicopter. But if I did, I would imagine I'd probably be like crunched so tightly on those controls, probably not relaxed at all. I can imagine mm-hmm. that's exhausting. Probably the adrenaline too. You probably come in with this like rush, like, ah, <gasps> and then as the adrenaline's kind of dropping, you're just, I, That fatigue has to be so real as you're going along. Um, So here, I'll
1: share one more piece with you because I think you'll like it. (laughs) So, uh, you know, 14, 15 hours, you know, that's about where I start hovering. Uh, Usually about 19 to 20 hours is your first solo in the helicopter. (gasps) And the solo in the Army.
0: early. Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) So solo in in the Army is not a true solo, but it's just you and your stick buddy. So it's you and someone that's just on the same level you are. The instructor sure pilot is not in a helicopter. And like I said, literally just a few training hours after you just finally learned how to hover this helicopter, you're now picking it up to a hover, doing three traffic patterns on your own and setting it back down, you know? And talk about the, the confidence booster that that gives you. There's a reason that we solo so early. It's because, you know, they want to prove to you that, hey, if you can figure out how to hover and you know how to fly the rest of it, you can completely fly this helicopter safe.
0: I'll go no, do wow. You know, that's really interesting. You're almost tackling like the hardest thing first and then saying like choking pushing yourself so early on into being on your own. It's like taking those triquills, like the tricycle wheels off early. Um and and there's enough hours that they know that you're at least cap- capable. But 1920 hours, that's so I just imagine I'm relating this to my own experience with music. Because with the heart <laughs> I feel like that would be 20 hours of practicing to suddenly like okay here's a concerto go yeah. play it and it took me like 15 years to play a concerto so mm-hmm. that's that's just so fast and also so I mean, I can't imagine the confidence you walk out saying okay I I I flew in the helicopter how was it that first day you're solo and you like landed the helicopter how did you feel walking out of that helicopter
1: uh you know it's a (laughs) it's a bunch of hugs and high fives with your stick buddy because you're like hey we didn't kill each other so that's (laughs) awesome oh my god Uh,
0: yeah you're like we didn't plummet to the ground like oh
1: man because the scariest part is really your stick buddy flying you know because when you're flying you're like at least i'm in control i know what my you know capabilities are you know i've been flying with my instructor pilot so i know i can fly this thing but yeah then you're you know i'm not an instructor pilot at the time so it's like I say buddy, I don't know where he was at or how confident he was. And here I am just supposed to be a sandbag a sitting in the other chair and not helping him out at all and oh and God. just trusting him with my life, you know?
0: I can, It's probably kind of like when your kids first learn to drive, when you're just sitting in the passenger seat, kind of breathing really heavy, like, oh, no. Like, are yeah. we going to make it through the stop sign or not?
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Holy cow. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a lot of trust that you – uniquely kind of are forced to have, um, and then build as as you land. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure there's kind of this unique relationship with your stick buddy. Um, wow, that's just an experience I don't think many of us will ever go through so I'm, I'm so glad you're sharing this with us because it's like the insider's view of, of flying a helicopter and I, I kind of want to transition into uh, could you tell us a little bit about your experience in action with the helicopter because you were deployed you were in action what was that what was it like
1: uh I mean Iraq uh, when I was in Iraq it's kind of on the wind down so yeah. uh you know, my experience there was actually kind of boring. Uh, really? <laughs> I mean, we did a lot of flying around, but there was was not a lot going on. But we were still okay. flying six hours a day. Okay. Um, but then it's so uh, my unit was one of the only units that did the Iraq to Afghanistan transition. So we started in Iraq, flew there for a while, and then uh, instead of just going home, they, uh, you know, we loaded everything up onto a C-17 uh, planes and and flew over to Afghanistan and and finished out. Uh, you know, a 12-month deployment in Afghanistan. So, uh, Afghanistan was busy. So we were the <laughs> we were the very first uh, attack helicopters in the western part of Afghanistan since the Russians. Wow. So wow. at that time in 20 or 2009, 2010, uh, it was primarily the west was owned by uh, you know allied nations. Uh, we mainly mainly were in the south and east, like right? Kandahar and Kabul area and Bagram. Uh, so we were kind of the ones that opened Shindan Airbase out in the west, and uh, you know my my first flight there uh, out in the west, you know uh, we were responding to a troops in contact, mm-hmm. and uh, we showed up on station, and I was so amazed that uh, the the you know enemy was shooting at the ground guys, saw us coming, immediately started shooting at us, and I was like, what's going on? <laughs> uh, this is not happening in Iraq. What do we do? What do we do? And I right. you know, back to see, was like, oh. Well, sh- Back, defend us, you know.
0: <laughs> right.
1: Oh. So yeah. uh, so yeah, super busy uh, when we show up to Afghanistan, mm-hmm. and uh, you know what? Sadly, you know, after seeing everything that's progressed over, over the years and, and how we exited from Afghanistan, um, you know, we were, and this is my perspective, you know, maybe maybe not the opinion of the army, but my opinion is that uh, we were doing a lot of good over there, and it's just sad to see, uh, you know, that the Taliban ended up uh, retaking control of the country. So, um, you know, there was so much progress made during our time there, uh, you know, women's rights, you know, a feeling of democracy, right. uh, safety for the people, like, uh, just to watch that kind of all, you know, get washed away is kind of sad.
0: I completely agree. It was, um, I, it's kind of been like this tragic pill to swallow, a really, um, really difficult situation, um what was it like to be deployed because this is this that to me is one of the hardest things in the military um because you you have your family and yet you're away and there's uncertainties you're at war so what was it like how did you find courage in these moments
1: um you know uh it's kind of been the same throughout throughout history you know they always say that uh Soldiers aren't fighting for their government or for the people, really. <laughs> You're fighting for the people to the left and right of you. And that that's really what it was for for us, you know. Uh, specifically for me is, is you know, every time I flew, you know, the very first thing we do when we take off is we check in with whatever ground unit was, was on the ground in the area we're in and say, hey, what do you guys got going on? What are you doing? Hey, we'll, we're willing to fly overhead for you and support, you know. yeah. And, uh, and everything we're doing, like I said, was in direct support of them. If they're pinned down or if they're taking fire, you know. It, is our goal to, to get him out of a sticky situation. So um, yeah. you know, the reason the whole reason I was there is not not for some strategic level thing. It was to make sure the guy on the ground lives, you know?
0: Yeah. I um I think that's one of the things when we were on base and still having friends um on base that I am so impressed with with the military. It gives you this different perspective that the community is so strong because truly you are you're fighting for each other. Um, And it's this beautiful space that I think sometimes we've lost in the world as a whole, but you find again, um, under really difficult circumstances in the military and beautiful out out of this difficulty is blossomed this, this beautiful um, relationships that we've kind of lost in the world of people standing up and fighting for each other, checking in with each other, um, caring for each other, defending each other. um, And I would hope that that people could see that and start to build that in their own communities as well, you know that that come from the military.
1: And I mean, just to be real, you know it's like, you know, I, I think the Army's pretty progressive in that in that manner. you know I, I don't care what race the person is on the ground, what gender they are, what orientation they are. I don't care about any of that. You know, we have that brotherhood, that sisterhood, that that bond. And I'll support you no matter who you are. I don't. I don't care where what your background is or where you came from. I, yeah. I care that you live. You know. <laughs> and sadly, really? you know, it just doesn't feel like that yeah. in the United States right now. There's just so much divisiveness right now.
0: I I agree, and I think you're completely right that the military is progressive in that sense. That it's it doesn't matter who the person is, what their background is, what their race is, what their orientation is. They're a person, and they're worth being protected. And I I just, I pray and hope that, that that mentality just oozes into the rest of society as a whole. And I'm so grateful that our military is an example of that because they're the people out there representing our country, defending it. And so I'm so grateful that that has, that's that's our military, you know, that's um, so beautiful. Did you ever have to jump out of the helicopter?
1: Did <laughs> you have to learn? Yeah. So uh, the helicopter, I mean, very few helicopters actually have, like, an injection seat or anything like that. Okay. So uh, so we actually uh, ride them to the ground, you know. Hopefully, okay. uh, hopefully it's uh, a survivable crash. <laughs> but, I mean, people, it, it's very interesting. The Apache, specifically, is probably one of the most survivable helicopters in the world. I mean, every system on there either has a double redundancy or triple redundancy to it. So, uh, and they've even been smart enough, like, you know, if there's two different, like, processors that do the same thing, they'll put them in different, they'll put one towards the nose on the right side and one towards the tail on the left side so that, you know, a magic bullet couldn't hit both of them and take them both out. So Interesting. Uh, they've thought of a lot of, of how to make it survivable, not only from enemy fire, but just from from uh, things that might happen in flight. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, so, I mean, there's there's not a recorded Apache uh, being down from any fire. Yeah. Um, that I know of. So, uh, usually, you know, sadly, and this goes for all helicopter pilots, whether you're in the military or not, we're usually better at killing ourselves than the enemy. killing us. So, and that, well, that's, you know, so just, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, a lot of times, uh, weather will get you, uh, you know, you're, you're planning on flying, uh, in visual conditions and all of a sudden it becomes instrument conditions while you're flying and you're just not prepared to transition to the instruments. You know, you don't have a good like instrument flight plan or anything. So oh, wow. uh, there's a lot of cases where people fly into the clouds and they'll get disoriented and, and end up crashing. So, wow. um, but yeah, uh, you know, so hopefully, you, <laughs> hopefully, you know, it takes a little bit of luck. But uh, also, uh, you know, you got to be on top of your game and make sure that you've uh, prepared appropriately and, and then practice everything you need to practice. Uh, so that if an emergency pops yeah. up, you're, you're able to just react.
0: I like how you said preparedness, too, because yeah, you could be relying on vision and suddenly you have to switch to um, instruments. <laughs> my, my dad always said um, he had this little model for our family, but pals are prepared and stay on task. <laughs> so I, I've had that indoctrinated into me of this preparedness, but it's come in handy throughout my life. And I, I believe that is you prepare for anything, you prepare for anything um, and everything. And did you ever find yourself in a moment that you were kind of crashing to the ground? And what did you do?
1: Uh, there was definitely a time, I mean, so uh, Afghanistan has some really complicated weather okay. uh, in the West, and that's because there's a big black hole known as Iran, uh, you know, uh-huh. between us and other countries that report the weather, so Iran obviously okay. does not share weather reports with, with the military, U.S. military, so right. um, there's definitely times where, uh, you know, looking outside, there wasn't barely a cloud in the sky, and our weatherman, you know, doing the best he can with what the knowledge he has and, and the instruments he's got, uh, you know, gave us a you go know, to a weather brief. And then, you know, we took off and, and on, on climb out, uh, all of a sudden, you know, we're trying to cross a ridgeline and we punch into some clouds. And, Ooh. uh, and like I said, that transition is scary. And that transition is usually, uh, what, what can kill a lot of pilots is, uh, having to hurry and switch to your instruments and you've been yeah. re- relying on visual cues the whole time. Wow. Uh, but luckily, you know, we, we, uh, practiced and rehearsed it and it had two pretty uh pretty good pilots in the cockpit and uh and the apache is just a very capable machine in general you know it's got things like hold modes where you can put on attitude hold and altitude hold so it'll kind of hold you know so you don't end up upside down (laughs) it'll hold your positioning and everything uh while you're flying so you can hurry and transition instruments um so for us it you know even though it was scary it was pretty uh Uh, routine as far as we were able to just execute our emergency procedure, turn around in the clouds, and uh, do an instrument approach back into our home base. That's
0: (laughs) crazy. I didn't even think about that, like, they wouldn't be, of course, they're not going to share their weather with you, and how much that would change your strategies and your capabilities. Um, Yeah, you kind of have to be prepared for anything as you go, that's, that's amazing. I am so glad that you've come and shared about, I don't know if I'll ever be able to fly a helicopter in my lifetime, but I feel like I've gotten the insider's view of like, okay, these, this is what it's like. And I'm so glad you've been on here, sharing it with us. And I want to wrap up with a question that we always ask. And what is one piece of advice that you would give your younger self to boost your confidence?
1: Uh, I would say it's all worth it. You know, it's kind of (gasps) advice I give because, you know, we're going to encounter barriers mm-hmm. throughout our entire life, you know? And I think, uh, you know, I think you've mentioned uh, Franklin Covey's, you know, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People before. Yes. And uh, I think if I remember correctly, one of them was like, uh, you know, you got to keep the end goal in mind. Like, yes. what is your end goal? What are you trying to strive to do? Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, just, just reminding my younger self that, hey, you know, whatever your goal is, whatever you want to do, whatever that end state is, you know, it's, it's worth it. It's worth the battle. It's worth the fight. It's worth, uh, you know, the slight failures we talked about earlier along the way. You know, just keep rebounding, keep picking yourself up, and and uh, you know, once you get to that final end state, uh, it, it'll all be worth it.
0: I really like that. I like it how you tied back into those moments of like those intermediate failures and intermediate successes as well. That in the end, it like it was worth it for you with, with learning to hover. Like you can hover now, obviously you've probably hovered. Oh, I can't even imagine how many hours at this point now that you successfully hovered. Um, I, I thank you for sharing that advice. That was a perfect way to wrap up our conversation. We're just so grateful that you've come on. Thank you for being here and doing an episode with us. Next week on the full confidence ahead podcast. If I give you some lyrics to a Disney song, I would like you to tell me what Disney movie those lyrics from that song come from. Does that sound all right? First one, what would I pay to spend a day warm on the sand? How many Disney's songs or just Disney movies are teaching us financial literacy principles? I think a lot of times the feeling of fear comes from a lack of control in our lives. And our sponsor, PowerPay, is offering a money master course that's normally $40 for free to all Full Confidence Ahead podcast listeners. So you can take control of your finances this year. The course is video based and gives you real life money smarts. So to claim your course, go to extensioncourses.usu.edu slash which is k-a-t-i-e-a-n-n-p-o-w-e-l-l and it'll automatically add the money master course to your cart and you just click checkout and you'll get it for free you can also access your course by going to extensioncourses.usu.edu and finding the money master course under the finance category then using the code KDN, Katie k-a-t-i-e-a-n-n with no spaces to claim your $40 discount and free course at checkout. So let's master our money together. Thanks for listening in on the full confidence ahead podcast weekly on Tuesdays. We'll continue our journey of confidence together through new interviews and insights. Make sure to hit the subscribe button to stay up to date on the latest conversations and confidence boost. And by the way, you got this because you deserve to live life full confidence ahead. See you next week.